Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, Episode 2, Desire. Whatever the mind of man can conceive and believe, it can achieve. When Edwin C. Barnes climbed down from the freight train in Orange, New Jersey more than 50 years ago, he may have resembled a tramp, but his thoughts were those of a king. As he made his way from the railroad tracks to Thomas A. Edison's office, his mind was at work. He saw himself standing in Edison's presence. He heard himself asking Mr. Edison for an opportunity to carry out the one consuming obsession of his life, a burning desire to become a business associate of the great inventor. Barnes' desire was not a hope. It was not a wish. It was a keen, pulsating desire which transcended everything else. It was definite. A few years later, Edwin C. Barnes again stood before Edison in the same office where he first met the inventor. This time, his desire has been translated into reality. He was in business with Edison. The dominating dream of his life had become a reality. Barnes succeeded because he chose a definite goal, placed all his energy, all his willpower, all his effort, everything back of that goal. The man who burned bridges. Five years passed before the chance he had been seeking made its appearance. To everyone except himself, he appeared only another cog in the Edison business wheel, but in his own mind, he was the partner of Edison every minute of the time, from the very day that he first went to work there. It is a remarkable illustration of the power of a definite desire. Barnes won his goal because he wanted to be a business associate of Mr. Edison more than he wanted anything else. He created a plan by which to attain that purpose, but he burned all bridges behind him. He stood by his desire until it became the dominating obsession of his life and finally a fact. When when he went to Orange, he did not say to himself, I will try to induce Edison to give me a job of some sort. He said, I will see Edison. I will put him on notice that I have come to go into business with him. He did not say, I will keep my eyes open for other opportunities in case I fail to get what I want in the Edison organization. He said, there is but one thing in this world that I am determined to have, and that is a business association with Thomas A. Edison. I will burn all bridges behind me and stake my entire future on my ability to get what I want. He left himself no possible way of retreat. He had to win or perish. That is all there is to Barnes' story of success. The Spur That Drives to Riches A long while ago, a great warrior faced a situation which made it necessary for him to make a decision which ensured his success on the battlefield. He was about to send his armies against a powerful foe whose men outnumbered his own. He loaded his soldiers into boats, sailed to the enemy's country, unloaded soldiers and equipment, then gave the order to burn the ships that had carried them. Addressing the men before the first battle, he said, You see the boats going up in smoke? That means we cannot leave these shores alive unless we win. We now have no choice. We win or we perish. They won. Every person who wins in an undertaking must be willing to burn his ships and cut all sources of retreat. Only by so doing can one be sure of maintaining that state of mind known as a burning desire to win, essential to success. The morning after the great Chicago fire, a great 
a group of merchants stood on State Street looking at the smoking remains of what had been their stores. They went into a conference to decide if they should try to rebuild or leave Chicago and start over in a more promising section of the country. They reached a decision, all except one, to leave Chicago. The merchant who decided to stay and rebuild pointed a finger at the remains of his store and said, Gentlemen, on that very spot I will build the world's greatest store, no matter how many times it may burn down. That was almost a century ago. The store was built. It stands there today, a towering monument to the power of that state of mind known as a burning desire. The easy thing for Marshall Field to have done would have been exactly what his fellow merchants did. When the going was hard, the future looked dismal. They pulled up and went where the going seemed easier. Mark well this difference between Marshall Field and the other merchants because it is the same difference which distinguishes practically all who succeed from those who failed. Every human being who reaches the age of understanding of the purpose of money wishes for it. Wishing will not bring riches. But desiring riches with the state of mind that becomes an obsession, then planning definite ways and means to acquire riches, and backing those plans with persistence which does not recognize failure, will bring riches. Six ways to turn desires into gold. The method by which desire for riches can be transmuted into financial equivalent consists of six entirely definite, practical steps, i.e., first, fix in your mind the exact amount of money you desire. It is not sufficient merely to say, I want plenty of money. Be definite as to the amount. There is a psychological reason for definiteness, which will be described in a subsequent chapter. Second, determine exactly what you intend to give in return for the money you desire. There is no such reality as something for nothing. Third, establish a definite date when you intend to to possess the money you desire. Fourth, create a definite plan for carrying out your desire and begin at once, whether you are ready or not, to put this plan into action. Fifth, write out a clear, concise statement of the amount of money you intend to acquire. Name the time limit for its acquisition, state what you intend to give in return for the money, and describe clearly the the plan through which you intend to accumulate it. Sixth, read your written statement aloud, twice daily, once just before retiring at night, and once after arising in the morning. As you read, see and feel and believe yourself already in possession of the money. It is important that you follow the instruction described in these six steps. It is especially important that you observe and follow the instructions in the sixth paragraph. You may complain that it is impossible for you to see yourself in possession of money before you actually have it. Here is where a burning desire will come to your aid. If you truly desire money so keenly that your desire is an obsession, you will have no difficulty in convincing yourself that you will acquire it. The object is to want money and to become so determined to have it that you convince yourself you will have it. Can you imagine yourself a millionaire? To the uninitiated, 
who has not been schooled in the working principles of the human mind, these instructions may appear impractical. It may be helpful to all who fail to recognize the soundness of the six steps to know that the information they convey was received from Andrew Carnegie, who began as an ordinary laborer in the steel mills, but managed, despite his humble beginnings, to make these principles yield him a fortune of considerably more than $100 million. It may be of further help to know that the six steps here recommended were carefully scrutinized by the late Thomas A. Edison, who placed his stamp of approval upon them as being not only the steps essential for the accumulation of money, but for the attainment of any goal. The steps call for no hard labor. They call for no sacrifice. They do not require one to become ridiculous or credulous. To apply them calls for no great amount of education. But the successful application of these six steps does call for sufficient imagination to enable one to see and to understand that accumulation of money cannot be left to chance, good fortune, and luck. One must realize that all who have accumulated great fortunes first did a certain amount of dreaming, hoping, wishing, desiring, and planning before they acquired money. You may as well know right here that you can never have riches to great quantities unless you can work yourself into a white heat of desire for money and actually believe you will possess it. The Power of Great Dreams We who are in this race for riches should be encouraged to know that this changed world in which we live is demanding new ideas, new ways of doing things, new leaders, new inventions, new methods of teaching, new methods of marketing, new books, new literature, new features for television, new ideas for moving pictures. Back of all this demand for new and better things, there is one quality which one must possess to win, and that is definiteness of purpose, the knowledge of what one wants and the burning desire to possess it. We who desire to accumulate riches should remember the real leaders of the world always have been men who harnessed and put into practical use the intangible, unseen forces of unborn opportunity, and have converted those forces, or impulses of thought, into skyscrapers, cities, factories, airplanes, automobiles, and every form of convenience that makes life more pleasant. In planning to acquire your share of the riches, let no one influence you to scorn the dreamer. To win the big stakes in this changed world, you must catch the spirit of the great pioneers of the past, whose dreams have given to civilizations all that it has of value. The spirit which serves as the lifeblood of our own country, your opportunity and mine to develop and market our talents. If the things you wish to do is right and you believe in it, go ahead and do it. Put your dreams across and never mind what they say if you meet with temporary defeat for they, perhaps, do not know that every failure brings with it the seeds of an equivalent success. Thomas Edison dreamed of a lamp that could be operated by electricity, began where he stood to put his dreams into action, and despite more than 10,000 failures, he stood by that dream until he made it a physical reality. Practical dreamers do not quit. Whelan dreamed of a chain of cigar stores transformed his dream into action, and now the United Cigar Stores occupy some of the best corners in America. 
the Wright brothers dreamed of a machine that would fly through the air. Now one may see evidence all over the world that they dreamed soundly. Marconi dreamed of a system for harnessing the intangible forces of the ether. Evidence that he did not dream in vain may be found in every radio and television set in the world. It may interest you to know that Marconi's friends had him taken into custody and examined in a psychopathic hospital when he announced that he had discovered a principle through which he could send messages through the air without the aid of wires or other direct physical means of communication. The dreamers of today fare better. The world is filled with an abundance of opportunity which the dreamers of the past never knew. How to get dreams off the launching pad A burning desire to be and to do is the starting point from which the dreamer must take off. Dreams are not born of indifference, laziness or lack of ambition. Remember that all who succeed in life get off to a bad start and pass through many heartbreaking struggles before they arrive. The turning point in the lives of those who succeed usually comes at the moments of some crisis through which they are introduced to their other selves. John Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, in which among all of the finest of English literature, after which he became confined in prison and sorely punished because of his views on the subject of religion. O. Henry discovered the genius which slept within his brain after he'd met with great misfortune and was confined in a prison cell in Columbus, Ohio, being forced through misfortune to become acquainted with his other self and to use his imagination, he discovered himself to be a great author instead of a miserable criminal and outcast. Charles Dickens began by pasting labels on blacking pots. The tragedy of his first love penetrated the depths of his soul and converted him into one of the world's truly great authors. That tragedy, that tragedy produced first David Copperfield, then a succession of other works that made this a richer and better world for all who read his books. Helen Keller became deaf, dumb and blind shortly after birth. Despite her great misfortune, she has written her name indelibly in the pages of the history of the great. Her entire life has served as evidence that no one is ever defeated until defeat has been accepted as a reality. Robert Burns was an illiterate country lad who was cursed by poverty and grew up to be a drunkard in the bargain. The world was made better for his having lived because he clothed beautiful thoughts in poetry and thereby plucked a thorn and planted a rose in its place. Beethoven was deaf. Milton was blind, but their names will last as long as time endures because they dreamed and translated their dreams into organised thought. There is a difference between wishing for a thing and being ready to receive it. No one is ready for a thing until he believes he can acquire it. The state of mind must be belief, not mere hope or wish. Open-mindedness is essential for belief. Closed minds do not inspire faith, courage and belief. Remember, no more effort is required to aim high in life, to demand abundance and prosperity, than is required to accept misery and poverty. A great poet has correctly stated this universal truth through these lines. A life, pardon me, I bargained with life for a penny, and life would pay no more. 
However, I begged at everything when I counted my scanty store. For life is a just employer. He gives you what you ask. But once you have set the wages, why, you must bear the task. I worked for a menial's hire only to learn, dismayed, that any wage I had asked of life, life would have willingly paid. Desire outwits Mother Nature As a fitting climax to this chapter, I wish to introduce one of the most unusual persons I have ever known. I first saw him a few minutes after he was born. He came into the world without any physical sign of ears, and the doctor admitted when pressed for an opinion on the case that the child might be deaf and mute for life. I challenged the doctor's opinion. I had the right to do so. I was the child's father. I too reached a decision and rendered an opinion, but I expressed the opinion silently in the secrecy of my own heart. In my own mind, I knew that my son would hear and speak. How? I was sure there must be a way, and I knew I would find it. I thought of the words of the immortal Emerson. The whole course of things goes to teach us faith. We need only obey. There is guidance for each of us, and by lowly listening, we shall hear the right word. The right word? Desire. More than anything else, I desired that my son should not be a deaf mute. From that desire, I never receded, not for a second. What could I do about it? Somehow, I would find a way to transplant into my, that child's mind my own burning desire for ways and means of conveying sound to his brain without the aid of ears. As soon as the child was old enough to cooperate, I would fill his mind so completely with a burning desire to hear that nature would be my methods of her own translated into physical reality. All this thinking took place in my own mind, but I spoke of it to no one. Every day I renewed the pledge I had made to myself that my son should not be a deaf mute. As he grew older, he began to take notice of things around him. We observed that he had a slight degree of hearing. When he reached the age when children usually began talking, he made no attempt to speak but we could tell by his actions that he could hear certain sounds slightly. That was all I wanted to know. I was convinced that if he could hear, even slightly, he might develop still greater hearing capacity. Then something happened which gave me hope. It came from an entirely unexpected source. An accident that changed a life. We bought a phonograph. When the child heard the music for the first time, he went into ecstasies and promptly appropriated the machine. On one occasion, he played a record over and over for almost two hours, standing in front of the phonograph, with his teeth clamped on the edge of that case. The significance of this self-formed habit of his did not become clear to us until years afterwards, for we had never heard of the principle of bone conduction of sound at that time. Shortly after he appropriated the phonograph, I discovered that he could hear me quite clearly when I spoke with my lips, touching his mastoid bone at the base of the skull. Having determined that he could hear the sound of my voice plainly, I began immediately to transfer to his mind the desire to hear and speak. I soon discovered that the child enjoyed bedtime stories, so I went to work, 
creating stories designed to develop in him self-reliance, imagination, and a keen desire to hear and to be normal. There was no one there was one particular story which I emphasized by giving it some new and dramatic coloring each time it was told. It was designed to plant in his mind the thought that his affliction was not a liability but an asset of great value. Despite the fact that all the philosophy I had examined clearly indicated that every adversity brings with it the seed of an equivalent advantage, I must confess that I had not the slight idea of how this affliction could ever become an asset. He won a new world with six cents. As I analyse the experience in retrospect, I can see now that my son's faith in me had much to do with the astounding results. He did not question anything I told him. I sold him the idea that he had a distinct advantage over his older brother, and that this advantage would reflect itself in many ways. For example, the teachers in school would observe that he had no ears, and because of this, They would show him special attention and treat him with extraordinary kindness. They always did. I sold him the idea, too, that when he became old enough to sell newspapers, his older brother had already become a newspaper merchant, he would have a big advantage of his brother for the reason that people would pay him extra money for his wares because they could see that he was a bright, industrious boy despite the fact he had no ears. When he was about seven, he showed first evidence that our method of servicing his mind was bearing fruit. For several months, he begged for the privilege of selling newspapers, but his mother would not give the project her consent. Finally, he took matters in his own hands. One afternoon, when he was left at home with the servants, he climbed through the kitchen window, shinnied to the ground, and set out on his own. He borrowed six cents in capital from the neighbourhood shoemaker, invested it in papers, sold out, reinvested, and kept repeating until late in the evening. After balancing his accounts and paying back the six six cents he had borrowed from his banker, he had a net profit of 42 cents. When he got home that night, we found him in bed asleep and the money tightly clenched in his hand. His mother opened his hand, removed the coins, and cried. Of all things, crying over her son's first victory seemed so inappropriate. My reaction was the reverse. I laughed heartily, for I knew that my endeavour to plant in the child's mind an attitude of faith in himself had been successful. His mother saw, in his first business venture, a little deaf boy who had gone out in the streets and risked his life to earn money. I saw a brave, ambitious, self-reliant little businessman whose stock in himself had been increased 100% because he had gone into business on his own initiative and had won. The transaction pleased me because I knew that he had given evidence of a trait of resourcefulness that will go with him through all his life. The little deaf boy who heard. The little deaf boy went through the grades high school and college without being able to hear his teachers excepting when they shouted loudly at close range. He did not go to a school for the deaf. We would not permit him to learn the sign language. We were determined that he should live a normal life and associate with normal children, and we stood by that decision, although it cost us many heated debates with school officials. While he was in high school, he tried 
an electronic hearing aid, but it was no value to him. During his last week in college, something happened which marked the most important turning point of his life. Through what seemed to be a mere chance, he came into the possession of another electronic hearing device, which was sent to him on trial. He was slow about testing it due to his disappointment with a similar device. Finally, he picked the instrument up and more or less carelessly placed it on his head, hooked up the battery, and lo, as if by a stroke of magic, his lifelong desire for normal hearing became a reality. For the first time in his life, he heard practically as well as any person with normal hearing. Overjoyed by the changed world which had been brought to him through this hearing device, he rushed to the telephone, called his mother and heard her voice perfectly. The next day, he plainly heard the voices of his professors in class for the first time in his life. For the first time in his life, he could converse freely with other people without the necessity of their having to speak loudly. Truly, he had come into possession of a changed world. Desire had commenced to pay dividends, but the victory was not yet complete. The boy still had to find a definite and practical way to convert his handicap into an equivalent asset. Thought that works miracles. Hardly realising the significance of what had already been achieved, by but intoxicated with the joy of his newly discovered world of sound, he wrote a letter to the manufacturer of the hearing aid, enthusiastically describing his experience. Something in his letter caused the company to invite him to New York. When he arrived, he was escorted through the factory, and while talking with the chief engineer, telling him about his changed world, a hunch, an idea or an inspiration, call it what you wish, flashed into his mind. It was this impulsive thought which converted his affliction into an asset, destined to pay dividends in both money and happiness to thousands for all time to come. The sum and substance of that thought was this. It occurred to him that he might be of help to the millions of deafened people who go through life without the benefit of hearing devices if he could find a way to tell them the story of his changed world. For an entire month, he carried on an intensive research during which he analysed the entire marketing system of the manufacturer of the hearing device and created ways and means of communicating with the hard of hearing all over the world for the purpose of sharing with them his newly discovered changed world. When this was done, he put in writing a two-year plan based on his findings. When he presented the plan to the company, he was instantly given a position for the purpose of carrying out his ambition. Little did he dream when he went to work that he was destined to bring hope and practical relief to thousands of deafened people who, without his help, would have been doomed forever to deafness. There is no doubt in my mind that Blair would have been a deaf mute all his life if his mother and I had not managed to shape his mind as we did. When I planted in his mind the desire to hear and talk and live as a normal person, there went with that impulse some strange influence which caused nature to become bridge builder and span the gulf of silence between his brain and the outer world. Truly, a burning desire has devious ways of transmuting itself into its physical equivalent. Blair designed normal hearing, now he has it. He was born with a handicap which might easily have sent one with less defined desire to the street with a bundle of pencils and a tin cup. 
a little white lie I planted in his mind when he was a child, by leading him to believe his affliction would become a great asset, which he could capitalise as justify itself. Verily, there is nothing right or wrong which belief, plus burning desire, cannot make real. These qualities are free to everyone. Mental chemistry works magic. One short paragraph in a news dispatch concerned Madame Schumann-Heinck giving the clue to this unusual woman's stupendous success as a singer. I quote the paragraph because the clue it contains is none other than desire. Early in her career, Mademoiselle Schumann-Heinck visited the director of the Vienna Court Opera to have him test her voice. But he did not test it. After taking one look at the awkward and poorly dressed girl, he exclaimed, none too gently, With such a face, and with no personality at all, how can you ever expect to succeed in opera? My good child, give up the idea, buy a sewing machine and go to work. You can never be a singer. Never is a long time. The director of the Vienna Court Opera knew much about their technique of singing. He knew little about the power of desire when it assumes the proportion of an obsession. If he had known more of that power, he would not have made the mistake of condemning genius without giving it an opportunity. Several years ago, one of my business associates became ill. He became worse as time went on and finally was taken to the hospital for an operation. The doctor warned me that there was little, if any, chance of my ever seeing him alive again. But that was the doctor's opinion. It was not the opinion of the patient. Just before he was wheeled away, he whispered feebly, Do not be disturbed, Chief. I will be out of here in a few days. The attending nurse looked at me with pity, but the patient did come through safely. After it was all over, his physician said, Nothing but his own desire to live saved him. He never would have pulled through if he had not refused to accept the possibility of death. I believe in the power of desire backed by faith, because I have seen this power lift men from lowly beginnings to places of power and wealth. I have seen it rob the grave of its victims. I have seen it serve as the medium by which men staged a comeback after having been defeated in a hundred different ways. I have seen it provide my own son with a normal, happy, successful life, despite nature's having sent him into the world without ears. Now, one can one harness and use this power of desire? This, this has been answered through this and subsequent chapters of this book. Through some strange and powerful principle of mental chemistry, which has never been, which she has never divulged, nature wraps up in the impulse of strong desire that something which recognizes no such word as impossible and accepts no such reality as failure.